gracious God and Father, you have given your Son on behalf of all of us. May we treasure him above all else and hear him and him alone. Bless him and his words to our hearts this evening. To your glory, in his precious name, the name Jesus. Amen. I was uh, at the barber shop earlier this week, you can probably tell, and um, there was a conversation when I entered uh, the shop, there was a conversation between the man at the chair and the barber, and they were talking about spiritual things, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And the man in the chair looked at me, and he said, you and him, meaning the barber, you need to come to our church. <laughs> he said, we are doing the living Lord's Supper, and it's just like the picture. I said, you mean Leonardo da Vinci's 15th century picture of the Last Supper? He said, yeah, that's it. He said, it's just like the picture. you got to come. He said, the guys are dressed up just like in the picture. And they're, they're all seated at the same places, just like in the picture. He said, you got to come. I said, well, what time is it? He said, well, it's Thursday night at 7. And I said, well, I'm busy then. And he, he didn't say anything, but he gave me this look like, yeah, they all say that. <laughs> anyway, I think, you know, that's a wonderful thing to do. Um, I've not been involved with that before. I'm sure it would be educational. Um, and nothing against that. But frankly, I'd rather be where the real meal is, okay, uh, rather than a reenactment of the picture. Anyway, that is the topic tonight, our Lord's Supper. And I draw your attention to page 7 in the bulletin. This is just across the gutter, really, from our epistle reading for this evening. This is probably, the, the words of Paul are probably the earliest account of the words of institution that we have. The Gospels would come a little bit later. This was around A.D. 50 or 53, somewhere in there. The Gospels just come a few years later. And point number one in your sermon outline, what this supper is, this is just from the Catechism, it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Now that in, with, and under is kind of, all those prepositions, it's kind of confusing to people, but. What it simply means is this, that the bread remains bread. It's not transformed into anything else. But the true body of the Lord is there, and the true blood of the Lord is present with the wine. That's the teaching of Scripture. And notice, it's for us Christians, it's for us Christians to eat and to drink to eat and to drink. That's the command. Take and eat. Drink of it, all of you. It doesn't say to adore the sacrament. 
I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying scripture does not command that. We're to eat and to drink. And, and we're to eat and to drink because we receive in this meal what we do not receive in any other meal during the week. The meal's unique. So that's what it is in a nutshell. It's the very body and blood of our Lord in and with the bread and the wine for us to eat and to drink. Now I ask part B, how can this be? We're reasonable people here, I'm assuming. And you know, even though I was raised Lutheran, I kind of wandered off my own direction um, during my teen and college years. And I kind of dabbled in Baptist theology. I really was impressed with that. I was impressed with uh, Calvinism, a Reformed theology. That captured my heart. And a Reformed uh, theology denies the presence of the body and blood in the sacrament. You know why? Because if I were to ask you, where's Jesus right now? Biblically speaking, you'd have to say, well, he's ascended into heaven. That means he ain't here. Bodily. That's the assumption. Why? Because human reason says a body can't be in two places at once. So I doubted the words of Christ that I was raised on, and I thought, well, yeah, the body of Christ is absent from the meal. Well, eventually, I, my wife and I decided to find a church home, and we went to a, a Lutheran congregation. I wasn't that keen on it because I thought I knew what Lutheranism was all about. I didn't want any part of it, really especially with the sacraments. But we sat down with the pastor, it was just the two of us in class, with the minister, and we started looking at the words, the text. What does the text actually say? And so I invite you to take a look at our epistle reading for tonight. St. Paul writes in verse 23, I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Meaning, I'm just passing it along, I'm not adding to it, I'm not taking from it. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed or handed over, and really, uh, he, certainly he's betrayed by Judas, but really and truly he's handed over to the authorities by God himself, this is God's will. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Now, he did not say this symbolizes my body. He didn't say this represents my body. He could have said that. There's a way to say that in the Greek. He didn't say this bread is like my body, as if he's speaking in a parable. You know, the kingdom of heaven is like thus and so. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, it is my body, which is for you. Do this, meaning the eating, 
in remembrance of me. We'll talk more about remembrance in just a moment. In the same way also he took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant or testament, as in last will and testament. I like that translation actually a little better. In my blood. Okay, so he, he proclaims that this cup is actually the New Testament. What we consider the New Testament in the Bible is, well, we can call it that, but the, really the New Testament is in the cup. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, meaning the cup of wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, now notice, he doesn't say that there's only body present and there's only blood present. He still calls the bread bread. And he still calls the cup a cup, meaning a cup of wine. There's no transformation of substance here, according to the text. And yet, the body and blood are present. How do we know this? And this is what convinced me of the biblical teaching on the Lord's Supper. I thought, well, Jesus may have said, this is my body, this is my blood, but you can interpret that different ways. It symbolizes, it represents, it's like my body, it's like my blood. But how does Paul understand it? How does Paul understand it? Notice verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That is to say, if you misuse this bread and wine, you're actually misusing the very body and blood of Jesus. That's, that's what he's saying. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread. Notice he still calls it bread. And drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, now, see, now we're back to body. Notice how we alternate between body and bread, body and bread, and the cup and the blood and the cup and the blood. Why? Because all these realities are present. Without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And that's how the judgment of God works. If we misuse the body of the Lord, we may suffer in our own bodies. What we do or what we misuse comes back on us in a similar fashion, body to body. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And this is the importance of self-examination that Paul mentions in verse 28. You see, there is no restriction on baptism. No one is told in Scripture to examine himself before he's baptized. But before you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are told, commanded, to examine yourself in light of God's Word. In other words, you acknowledge you're a sinner. I mean, this meal is for the forgiveness of sins, after all. Therefore, it's a sinner's meal. Acknowledge that. And do you believe in Jesus as your Savior? And do you believe in his words in the sacrament? This is my body, this is my blood. 
And do you resolve to move forward from this point on, leaving the sins behind and following the Lord faithfully? Yes, we'll stumble and fall, but we rely on the forgiveness that He alone provides. That's an example of self-examination. It's in the front of your hymnal as well. Uh, the questions with which one can examine oneself before coming to the Lord's Supper. So, how can this be? Jesus said so, Paul said so, and you know what? Like so many other things in Scripture, if it's beyond my comprehension, I don't exalt my reason above the Word of God. I submit my reason to the Word of God, and I give God credit for knowing more than I do. I use this illustration a lot. This is a Bible, and this is my brain. When there's something in the Bible that I can't comprehend or understand, I'm faced with a choice. Either I exalt my reason above the Word of God, and I say, well, God's Word may say it, but that's not what I believe because it doesn't make sense. Or I submit my reason to the Word of God, and I say, you know what? God does know more than I do. I'll trust His Word, even though it's beyond my comprehension. And we do that all the time without realizing it. Now, there are many things in the Bible beyond our comprehension. How can God be three in one? I don't know, okay? But I believe it. Scripture compels me to that confession. How can Jonah be swallowed by a great fish and survive? I don't know. But God's Word tells me so. I believe it. How can Jesus turn water into wine? Don't ask me. I just work here, see? Okay? But I trust the Word of God. I submit my reason to the Word. Reason's a great gift from God. It comprehends many things, mathematics and grammar and astronomy and so on. But when it comes to certain things, including things beyond our understanding in God's Word, we submit our reason to it. Now, thank God, most Christians do that. You know, this is what we Lutherans call the fortunate inconsistency. Meaning, our brothers and sisters in other churches will take the Word of God literally and believe the miracles of the Bible, and yet they won't take this passage literally. Okay? Well, thank God, they're consistent on the other things, right? They're believers as you and I are. Thank God they are, and we're, we're thankful for them. But all too often what we find is, is what we call the unfortunate consistency. And, and that's where once you start rejecting one part of Scripture, and you say, well, I don't understand how that can be, therefore it can't be, then we reject other parts. It's a slippery slope. And when you do that enough, you're no longer in the faith, you see. So we have to be really careful about this. So basically, that's what the supper is. It is the very body and blood of Jesus given and shed for you. The very same body and blood given and shed at the cross 2,000 years ago is somehow present in this meal by the power of his word. Remember, he does everything by speaking, right? And it's not my word. But when his words are spoken over these humble elements in a way that only he knows, his very body and blood are present with those elements. That's the teaching of Scripture. That's taking it literally. Okay? 
So that's what the meal is. Now, point two, what does it do? Well, through this meal, God delivers us from sin and death. Luther will rightly say where there's forgiveness of sins, there's also everlasting life and salvation. The two go together, forgiveness and life. Just as we receive forgiveness by hearing the word, hearing the absolution spoken earlier in baptism, we receive it in this meal as well. God comes to us, he comes at us from different directions, from these various sources of grace to feed our souls and to convince us that yes, we are his children even though we've grievously stumbled and have been unfaithful. He still claims us as his. And point B, it is the remembrance of Christ's death. And this is important, and we really don't say enough about it. And so I want to dwell on it briefly this evening. Point number one, remembrance in the Bible involves much more than recollection of an event. It involves participation in that event. It involves participation in that event. And we see this in Scripture, uh, just across the gutter, the service of the Word, their Old Testament reading, Exodus 12. I've given you the Jewish translation of verse 14. I think it's a little better. I mean, it means the same thing. In, in their English Bibles, it says, well, this, this will be for you a day, of rem- uh, a, a day of memorial, a memorial day for you. But I like the word remembrance because it's the very same word Jesus uses in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay? And I cite Exodus 13, 9. Actually, that's the Hebrew. And in English, in your English Bible, it's verse 8. All right, verse 8. But uh, this is what the Israelite parents are taught. They're told by Moses, teach your children to say, when you celebrate the Passover meal now, this remembrance of the deliverance from Egypt, when you celebrate the Passover, you are to say to your children this, it is what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. That's what the child is to say, even though he or she was not born yet even though they didn't really come out of Egypt with that first generation of Israelites. They are to consider themselves as having come out of Egypt. Through the meal, through the Passover meal, they actually participate in the Exodus. That's what they're taught. That's what it means to remember. To remember means you partake of the meal. And as you partake of the meal, you are incorporated into that generation that left Egypt. I was, my wife and I were in Greenfield Village several years ago. It was uh, the autumn of the year, and that's in Dearborn, Michigan. And um, Henry Ford had taken all these historical sites from around the United States and and brought them to Dearborn, which is kind of, when you think about it, it's not really a, it's it's like the English going into Egypt and raiding all the the, uh, archaeological treasures and taking them back to London, right? But anyway, you have all these um, historical buildings there in Greenfield Village. It's a beautiful place. I enjoy it. Um, And there's even a restaurant, I think it's called the Eagle Tavern, 
and you can go in there and it's, you can eat an 1850 meal, an American meal from 1850, which is kind of interesting. And I learned, among other things, they eat a lot of pork, okay? And a lot, they drink a lot of alcohol, too, in 1850. Um, biscuits and pork and alcohol. Anyway, uh, we, we did drink the alcohol. But um, anyway, it was, it was a, you participate in this experience, you kind of, it sort of connects you in a way with what people did in another time, another place. Point number two, through the Passover meal, generations of Israelites personally participated in the exodus from Egypt. They personally participated in the exodus through the meal. And in the same way, through the Lord's Supper, generations of Christians personally participate in the new and greater exodus, his deliverance of humanity from sin and death. Now, I cite Luke 9.31. That's uh, the transfiguration of our Lord. And Jesus is on the mountain, shining in glory, speaking with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is in the center. He's always in the center. He should be the center of everything we do here. And what are they talking about? They're talking about his exodus, his departure, which is soon to be brought about in Jerusalem, his death, his resurrection, you see. And the interesting thing is, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, I cite that, St. Paul makes the statement that this meal connects us to that exodus experience. St. Paul asks this question, and it's a question that is asked expecting a positive reply. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? You see, by partaking of the meal, we participate in his death. We're connected to his death. Again, don't ask me how that works. I'm just telling you what the text says, you see. And the same thing is said in Scripture regarding baptism. In Romans chapter 6, St. Paul talks about baptism and its connection to Jesus. And this is what St. Paul says. Do you not know that those of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Catch that? If you're baptized in Christ, and, and Paul even says, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? You're connected to his death. And then Paul goes on to say, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. See, de baptism connects you to the burial of Jesus. In order that, Paul goes on, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism connects you to the resurrection of Jesus. It does all these things. Again, it's beyond my comprehension. 
But that's what Paul says about baptism, this simple act of water and the word. God does something amazing through it. The same is true of the Lord's Supper. And why shouldn't it be so? This is God at work. Point number three, the real presence of the Lord in his supper, meaning the real presence of his body and blood in and with the bread and the wine, makes us, and pardon me, this is a long word, it makes us contemporaneous. <laughs> it makes us contemporaneous. Well, we're, we're contemporaries with Jesus and with believers of all ages. And I cite 1 Corinthians 10, 17, where St. Paul writes, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body because we all partake of the one bread. Now, what he's saying is, by partaking of the Lord's body, we are somehow bodied together. We're bodied together through our participation in this. This is a meal like none other. You can't say these kinds of things about anything else you eat, or really anything else you do. It's that unique. How can this be? Don't ask me how. Again, I just work here. But there's no other meal like this. It's beyond our comprehension. And you know what? When it comes to the things of God, that's all right. Because by the grace of God, we will submit our reason to his word and take our stand on it now and in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, amen.